0: Today's November 6th, 2018, Election Day. And this is how it looks in El Paso, Texas.
1: I've never seen a, a bigger sense of urgency as I have this year. I mean, uh, my parents have voted for years, but this year, I mean, it it's almost like they couldn't wait for, for early voting to begin.
0: Alfredo Corchado is a journalist, writes for the Dallas Morning News, covers the border.
1: I mean, my mother will spend hours on the phone just calling everyone she knows, and making sure that they, that they voted, and asking everyone, you know, can you send us a picture to make sure that you voted?
0: She wants to see the receipts.
1: She wants to make sure that uh, they don't say, oh, yeah, of course we're going to vote. No, she wants proof.
0: I called up Alfredo because we have spent so much of this election talking about immigration.
1: Democrats want to invite... Caravan after caravan of illegal aliens to pour into our country, I don't think so. The criminals, the smugglers, the trespassers marching toward our border, turn back now because you are not getting in. I don't care what the fake media says, that's an invasion of our country.
0: I wanted to know what today felt like on the border itself. So I asked Alfredo, does it feel like you're waiting for an invasion?
1: Not at all, unless you you are the target of of the of this administration. I mean, last week in El Paso, I you know one morning there was like you know helicopters, federal helicopters hovering over the homes of of, of El Pasoans. You had a drill, security drill on top of the bridge. This is not normal for the city. I mean, again, this city is one of the safest uh, anywhere in the United States, and and that's really the same story you will hear along border towns, border cities along the U.S. side of the border. They are some of the safest. So to see all this activity, to, you know, turn the TV on and, and listen to how the White House portrays it as a, as this crisis, as this invasion, I mean, we all kind of look at each other and say, you know, what is he talking about? Or what is President Trump talking about? That's not the El Paso. That's not the border that we know or that we live on.
0: Alfredo says the border is seeing a humanitarian crisis. Whole families from Central America seeking shelter and food and work, and most of all, a safe place for their kids. Despite what you might have heard, illegal crossings are actually down. But the people who are crossing, that's changed. It used to be that single Mexican men came over the border for work.
1: This is a very different scenario. You have entire families who are coming in up in crowded uh, facilities where you have 50, 60, 70 people. I think I've interviewed some people last week or as many as 80 people into these tiny tiny rooms. Uh they they share a bathroom, they share a shower. It's been something that uh, that's overwhelmed many of the NGOs, many of the shelters to the point where last week um some of them were just being dropped off by the government instead of being processed or instead of helping them find flights or reconnect them with families in the United States. They're dropping them off at uh, Greyhound buses in downtown El Paso.
0: El Paso's home to Beto O'Rourke. It's one of the bluer counties in Texas. Many of Texas's border counties are blue, actually. And Alfredo has a very personal take on this immigration rhetoric. He's a former migrant farm worker, the son of Mexican immigrants himself. When Trump got elected, Alfredo's parents questioned a lot of things, including whether staying in the United States was such a good idea. — but for Alfredo and his parents, El Paso turned out to be the perfect place to settle down after leaving California.
1: It was always interesting when they when we lived in the San Joaquin Valley. El Paso was the place they wanted to be because it was a place that you didn't really have to choose between one side or the other. I mean, you were there. It's it's almost like a third country. I say in, in my book, you know, it's the border is the epicenter of, of, of my homelands, and it's the epicenter of our homeland as immigrants and and and. People like my parents who, who came here, and I keep trying to remind my mother that uh, that the values of this country, that the beliefs of this country, are still there, and that they will—they are bigger than the moment that we that we live in today.
0: Alfredo knows that as a voter in a border town, his vote, his family's vote, and the vote of everyone else in his little blue county. It matters just a little bit more today than maybe it ever has.
1: If if we don't care, if we don't give it, then I mean, no one else will. We have to go out there, regardless whether you're Republican or or independent or Democrat, you have to vote.
0: I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Today on the show, we're going to give you bite-sized takes on the election from around the country. We're going to try to shift your perspective, give you new ways of looking at what these midterms are all about. But we're going to start with the view from a TV studio. Spoiler alert, election reporters are expecting it's going to be a long night.
2: Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: All right, if you're like me, you're going to watch the returns tonight from your couch. You'll have the TV and the phone. Maybe you're going to have a tablet with you. My main challenge, other than figuring out what's going on, is going to be keeping my kids in bed while I binge watch. But Amy Walter, the host of The Takeaway, she's also the national editor of the Cook Political Report, she's got different issues.
3: Well, here's my problem. It's not a problem. I enjoy it. But I'm on the set of the PBS NewsHour. Right. All night. And as you know... PBS does not have commercial breaks, which makes it really super complicated to do things like go to the bathroom. Um, So I have to find creative ways to tell them that they need to move the camera or focus on something else while I run out.
0: Yesterday, I talked to Amy about the races she's following this year. But after that, I asked her to take me inside her election night, see if I could glean any advice on how to watch smarter. She says, look... Regular humans can't do what she does. While the camera's turned away, she is side texting and emailing political operatives for the inside scoop. But you can up your midterm game in one way. Follow a few key people on Twitter.
3: And so, for example, on election night in 2016, there's this guy named Steve Shale, who's a Democratic operative in Florida. He was credited with Obama's success in that state in 2012, 2008. And you could tell early in the evening he was, Tweeting about how great the returns looked for Democrats, and then I think we those of us who followed him remember very distinctly the point where he said, Huh, there's some really good numbers coming in from republicans these these rural districts are coming in big and a lot of republican votes, and that at that moment you knew Florida is going for Trump, so those were the sorts of those are the sorts of people that tell me or give me sort of an early heads up.
0: She had one more piece of advice. For those of us who are getting a little anxious about tonight, Amy's going to give you permission to just avoid the whole thing.
3: So if it if it makes you feel really bad to watch that thing and make you anxious, do not watch it. I always am fascinated by antacid ads. You know, people are like, oh my God, spicy food makes me feel really bad. Oh, well, don't worry about it. Here, have this antacid. You can still eat it rather than, well, just don't. Don't eat it if it makes you feel bad, right? Like right. I don't, I don't get that fundamentally. Like I, there are things that I can't eat because they make me feel really bad, so I just don't eat them. Here's here's
0: my question: If I can't help myself, which I probably can't, from watching lots of things all at the same time, yeah, you can't. What's my antacid?
3: Mm, well, I would pick a martini personally because <laughs> um, that just takes the edge off.
0: So my takeaway here is watch Amy Walter on PBS. Thank you. (laughs) That Um,
3: is number one.
0: Number one. Maybe follow a few people on Twitter Mm -hmm. and like prepare for a snowstorm, basically. Like get some bread and milk
3: (laughs) and (laughs) settle in. (laughs) And settle in for a really long night. I mean, I can't sleep anyway. Like, you know you.
0: Amy, thank you so much for walking me through the strategy for midterm election night.
3: This has been really fun.
0: Thank you.
4: It has been really fun. My name is Molly Olmsted, and I write for Slate. Hey, Molly.
0: Hi. This is my colleague Molly. She says tonight, when she's watching the returns, there's this one constituency she's going to be looking out for. Teachers, Take
5: a look at this sea of red. 50,000 teachers.
2: These legislators in these buildings have said you're selfish. Are you selfish?
0: Teacher strikes and walkouts have been spreading from West Virginia to Arizona. You probably remember the wave of teacher strikes around the country earlier this year. It was activism that spread from West Virginia to Oklahoma, from Arizona to Kentucky.
4: My understanding was that people really woke up to how big education could be as an issue in the state. And it seemed like there was this huge victory and this sort of absolutely unprecedented wave of teacher strikes and walkouts. It turns
0: out months later, those teachers are still agitating. And in some of today's races, they might actually decide who wins and who loses.
4: The sort of most glamorous part of it is the teachers running for office, because you do have unprecedented numbers in some states of teachers who signed up. You have these teachers getting out and they're canvassing. They're trying to push ballot initiatives. In some of these places, I've heard that teachers before this were considered apolitical or a lot of them were very conservative because they were just like, you know, voting the way that their friends and family do. And so it was a bit of a political awakening. And what are they looking for? Well, I think most of the time they're trying to get Democratic candidates in, although you do have some Republicans who are just like, pro-education in general because they want to get more funding.
0: Is this kind of organization unusual?
4: Yes. Well, according to labor historians I spoke to, most of the history of labor in public education in the country is more city and district based. So for the first time ever, you have these mass statewide strikes all happening pretty much at the same time. West Virginia, they started it off. Kentucky, Arizona, we have it in Colorado. It was huge.
0: You focus a lot of your reporting on Arizona. Why do you want to do that?
4: So, in Arizona, with the union's help, they were satisfied that they had won a pretty significant pay increase, but they did not feel satisfied that they'd gotten the education funding that they needed for the schools themselves. So they sort of were trying to get this ballot initiative passed that was going to increase school funding by taxing the wealthiest people in the state. But then that actually failed because of a Arizona Supreme Court challenge that ultimately decided that there was something confusing about the wording and the initiative. So they're having to go after funding through traditional elections, which is getting education-friendly candidates who are going to try and win more funding for them.
0: And what I love about this story is that the teachers just kind of kept presenting themselves in Arizona. Like, people would come out and say, oh, you're being co-opted by the Democrats. and But they would just keep coming back, and they started this movement. They called it Red for Ed, right?
4: Yeah, it's called Red for Ed. They would wear red t-shirts every wednesday and i was told recently that they're actually still doing that
0: and you spoke to one teacher in particular who's actually running for office
4: in arizona right her name is christine marsh that's correct what was she like she has a lot of energy. She's been a teacher for more than 25 years. She runs long distance. She's just very driven. And you can see that in the fact that she was named Teacher of the Year in 2016. Hmm. People are really seeing her as this major education candidate, someone who could contribute to the flipping of the Arizona State Senate. And she's a Democrat? And she is a Democrat. Almost all the teachers running for office are running as Democrats.
0: How many Democrats are in the Senate right now? Do you know?
4: Well, it's actually—so the House is not the math that goes against the Democrats in the Arizona State House. But in the Senate, it works in their favor in that it's actually very close. So if she wins her seat and another Democrat wins, they will have tied it up. And then if they win three seats, which is possible, they'll have flipped the Senate.
0: On election night, what's going to be going through your mind? What's your question going to be as you watch these races come in?
4: I want to know if this is going to be a issue with any kind of staying power beyond sort of the high drama of the moment of these sort of mass numbers of teachers in red hanging out in the capitals this is our house. when it's no longer a crisis are parents and members of the community still going to Care passionately about education funding as an issue when they go to the polls? Or was this more of a moment?
0: Molly, thank you so much. No problem. I enjoyed it. This episode is brought to you by Discover. Dr. Johnson.
5: Hi, Mary Harris. How are you? I am happy as a clam. How about yourself?
0: <laughs> what? What's What's lighting you up today?
5: Uh, I am I am lit up by the never ending joy that comes from watching democracy in action and or attempts to stop democracy in action, which is the case in Georgia where I am right now. But that's that's got me excited and pumped this morning.
0: Jason Johnson writes for The Root. He teaches at Morgan State University. You might have seen him in his capacity as an MSNBC contributor. And we connected this morning from his hotel room in Atlanta, Georgia. Jason has been covering the governor's race down there for a while. Democrat Stacey Abrams, who could be the first black woman governor in the United States, versus Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp. Jason used to live in Atlanta, so he was kind of happy to make the trip.
5: Yeah, it's also got really, really good wings at Sweet Auburn barbecue, so.
0: I wanted to talk to Jason because we have all been talking so much about white voters. Sometimes folks call them suburban voters or rural voters, And Jason says, look, those voters are important, but this election day is about way more than that.
5: So here's the thing. People are motivated to vote when they believe that there's somebody who's running who will directly impact what's happening in their lives. That's how it works. And so... I've never really believed in this whole we got to get working class white voters first off that's that's just garbage um, you know America's going to be saved by white women in the suburbs. that's just garbage too. America ends up being saved quote unquote or elections end up being won by going to underserved people and convincing them that you will do something so for example, you look at somebody like Stacey Abrams in Georgia, she goes to rural Georgia and she says, Hey, you realize that we have like fifteen counties that don't have OBGYNs. I mean, there are literally rural counties in Georgia that don't have hospitals, that don't have places that are less than 40 minutes away.
0: And she comes and she says, I see you.
5: Exactly. I see you and I will fix this problem. And guess what? It doesn't matter what color you are. Most people are going to say, yeah, it really, really stinks that I can't get you know, basic prenatal care without having to drive 90 minutes to the nearest county or the nearest city. So that's why I think in some instances we'll see the results today. That's why Democrats have been able to be effective, because when you talk about something like health care and rural hospitals, everybody cares.
0: But I feel like whenever we talk about this, like we talk about going after one particular group of people and then sort of letting the other group of people fall to the side. I mean, you talked a little bit about Claire McCaskill in Missouri. We saw Trump there last night. Obviously, this is a big race where he really wants Josh Hawley, the Republican um, competitor, to win. Mm -hmm. But you've said, listen, what she's doing is she's paying attention to one side of this race but not the other.
5: Well... See, an effective politician knows how to pat their head and rub their tummy, right? So in Claire McCaskill's case, look, she has spent roughly the last four years trying to play the middle. A lot of Democrats have tried to play the middle, but you do that when you think that that's your only way of being successful. The narrative that that Democrats were excluding or ignoring black people or Latino people in favor of working class white voters or, or Trump voters or whatever. There's some truth to that, but it really wasn't so much about messaging. It was about money. Mm. It's not that John Ossoff didn't talk to black people in Georgia 6. It's that for all the $15 million zillion that they spent in Georgia 6 in that special election last year, very little of that money went to people who were actually prepared for and had a history in turning out anything other than white voters.
4: Hmm.
5: And that's where a lot of these changes are going to be happening, probably after these midterms, because the stranglehold of a Democratic polling and get-out-the-vote elite is probably going to be broken in some of these states.
0: You think it's going to be broken basically because folks will realize how narrow their perspective was. Well,
5: and because it didn't work. I mean, like, like, you know, Doug Jones is a perfect example of this, right? Doug Jones won because you have organizations like Black Votes Matter, which almost no one had heard of, right? But uh, Latasha Brown had been doing consulting work throughout the South and running campaigns for like, I don't know, five or six years. Hmm. And no one had been paying any attention to her because she wasn't one of the big power players in Washington, D.C., yet you know, Doug Jones will say, you know, if you ask him, like, yeah, I basically got in because of organizations like this. But that's what you've sort of got going on right now. And so if Gillum is successful, if Abrams was successful, if any of these other sort of races, you know, end up being successes, if you think about it, you know, Donna Brazil just, just came out with a book about this. It's her and four black women who are sort of at the the forefront of democratic consulting over the last 25 or 30 years. But I mean, think about it. If you if you look, if you ask your average national reporter and say, hey, you name an African-American woman who is a big deal in democratic politics, the only name they know is Donna Brazile. Mm. And I think that's what this midterm is going to show, that there are other people out there that have this skill set, that can get out the vote, that can do phone banking, that can do fundraising, who have not been getting contracts under the previous regime of the DNC. And that's probably going to change after today.
0: Okay, so you're watching the returns tonight. Where are you doing it?
5: I'm going to be in the Abrams campaign headquarters. My guess is it probably ends up in a runoff. But I will also say this. The behavior that I've seen from the Brian Kemp campaign over the last week is not the behavior of somebody whose internal polls say that he's winning.
0: Yeah, it's not confident.
5: No, it's not.
0: And Brian Kemp has been canceling debates and coming after Democrats and saying that they're somehow manipulating the vote.
5: Exactly. And... And here's the thing. You're not doing that. I mean, I, I will be particularly candid. This this crazy story where he's like, we're now going to investigate the Democratic Party for vote hacking. The only reason I can see you saying that is because something in your poll suggests that you may lose. That allows you to rhetorically set up the narrative that, one, let's say Stacey Abrams somehow wins. Brian Kemp is going to say, sorry, we think this has been hacked, I won't certify the results. Or two, if there is a runoff by saying, oh, well, I think the Democrats hacked me the weekend beforehand. Again, he is setting up the narrative so that he can do all sorts of ridiculous shenanigans. I mean, Brian Kemp clearly does not care if he looks like he's, he's cheat, like he's like the New England Patriots. Like, I don't care if I'm a cheater. Like, I just want to win. change
0: the footballs, dude.
5: <laughs> exactly. I'll deflate the football. I'll take the other team. I'll steal. He doesn't care as long as he ends up winning. And none of that is the behavior of a guy whose internal numbers show him winning 52 to 48. Because if that were the case, he would have been quiet this last week and just been like, yeah, we got this.
0: It sounds like you're settling in for a long night. Like, what's your strategy here? You have power bars? You have coffee? What do you have?
5: You know, this is the thing. I'm a, I'm a night owl. So <laughs> campaign nights for me are not strained. I'm going to be up till 2 or 3 in the morning regardless.
0: Thank you so much for telling me more about what's going on, Jason Johnson. I just learned a whole lot.
5: Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: I want to go back to the border, to Alfredo Corchado, who we talked to at the top of the show. His family felt so much urgency about voting this year, but there was something else, too. You you have this picture that you posted from when you voted. Your dad and your mom, they look serious, too.
1: They look so serious.
0: In this picture, Alfredo's dad is in a cowboy hat and a leather jacket. His mom is giving a thumbs up, but Alfredo is the only one smiling.
1: I mean, there was a sense of determination. Uh, I remember we we arrived, and there was a you know there was a small little line, which is something really unusual. You don't see lines in El Paso. Small little line. My mother did not want to take off her shirt. She had a blue Beto shirt on, and it wasn't until we walked inside that uh, they said, you know, you, you can't have the shirt on. So I put my little fleas over her, and we walked out. And I could see there was like a real sense of relief in my mother and then my father, but then there was a, this this real joy when they looked around and that small little line had had grown, you know, big big part of the mall, and it was something you have never seen, and and she just kind of smiled.
0: Over the last couple of weeks, Alfredo's family has been swapping photos like this one over text message, urging each other to vote.
1: This is serious. We have to have a say so what this country will look like and be like tomorrow. No more standing on the sidelines.
0: During the last midterm election, the majority of Americans stayed on the sidelines. Just 37% of eligible voters showed up to cast a ballot. And if there's one good thing about this midterm season, it's that that number is likely to change. One more thing before we go. When I talked to Amy Walter, she actually gave me a list of people to follow on my second screen while I watch the returns tonight. Folks are going to know what's happening way before I do. You can get that whole list by going to Twitter and finding me. I'm at Mary's desk. And that picture of Alfredo Corchado with his parents after voting, you can see that there too. For Election Day, that's the show. What Next is in its last two weeks of piloting. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can leave a review there. Let us know what you think. It also helps other people find us, so we'd love it if you did it. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Our engineer is Terrence Bernardo. Thanks to all of my colleagues at Slate. They are getting ready for a late night tonight. They're going to be parsing all these election results, telling you what they mean, so stay tuned. Talk to you
2: tomorrow.